0: Welcome to another Reimagining Windows show on TechNet Radio. This is our series of business value interviews for IT managers all around Windows 8. My name is Kevin Remney and I'm a senior IT pro evangelist on the U.S. developer and platform evangelism team at Microsoft, and I'm your TechNet Radio host today. Now, Today's interview is part four of an eight-part series on Windows 8 tips and tricks, and we're talking today again with Microsoft Principal Technical Account Manager Lex Thomas. Welcome back, Lex. Hey. What's up, Kevin? How you doing, bud? Great, great. Good to see you, and, and good to talk to you again about uh, some really uh, useful tips. Today we're going to talk about uh, some of the newer and quite useful features in Windows 8 that have to do with, uh, well, many different things. These are really kind of new technologies and new ideas that uh, most people are probably not familiar with, so it's a pretty exciting show for us today. Uh, why don't you show us what's new?
1: Yeah, what we're going to talk about today are some of the really cool storage options that we have Uh in Windows 8 that uh, a lot of people don't know about. Um, there's actually two that are really cool. Number one is file history, and we'll talk about file history. And then number two is uh, storage spaces. And uh, 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 we'll try and get to that one today. Also, uh, we're going to talk about virtual machines, and uh, we'll recap Windows to Go. Um, so Excellent. we've got we've got a lot of stuff to talk about today. All right, so uh, let me get started. Uh, let me uh, first talk about uh, file history. So I know that uh, uh, there are other brands of computers out there, and some of them run other OSs, and uh, one brand in particular has had a, uh, uh, a feature called Time Machine, which uh, allows you to go out, uh, delete files, and then if you decide that maybe you want that back, or if somebody modified or changed a file and you want a newer, an older version of that file, you can actually go back, grab that file, restore it to its previous state. Um, and and that's, that's been kind of a fairly successful uh, option. right? People like to be able to do that. And uh, one of the things that we've added in Windows 8 is uh, a, a similar feature. Uh, called file history and file history allows you to do essentially the same thing so what I'm going to do is show you guys how to set that up uh, explain how it works and uh, we'll actually delete a file and then and then restore the file using file history
0: Uh, sound cool sounds great sounds great let's see it
1: okay so uh, let's uh, let's go ahead and turn on file history so the first thing that I want to do is go to control panel So I'm going to go down to the bottom here and just right-click and bring up Control Panel. And in Control Panel, we have an option, File History. And So if I go into File History, this is where I can turn File History on or off. Uh, Right now, File History is on. And the reason that it's on, the reason that I'm not starting from scratch here, is because uh, it can take a while if you've got a lot of files for File History to build the history. Right? Because remember that file history is essentially a backup. So it has to go in and it has to back up all of the files. But it's fairly straightforward. It's exactly the same screen where it says turn off here. It just says turn on. And if you turn it on, you can select your drives, et cetera. And I'll take you through some of the uh, options that you have. If I go into Select Drives, these are all the drives that are available. I can also add a network location. And if I go in and select Add a Network Location, uh, I could just, uh, let me just, I'll enter a, a location here.
0: So these are the destinations for your backup, for your file history data.
1: Yeah, that's correct, for file history. And so right. I'm going to send these to 192.168.5.80, uh, which is a, a, a SAN that I have here on my local network. And I've got a, a folder called LexT there, so I'll just select that. Notice that that shows up as an available file history drive. So if I were to select that and select OK, then I I would be adding that network location to my file history drives. And so whenever I'm on the network and that drive's available, it would go ahead and, based on some settings, and I'll show you the settings in just a uh, a few minutes, based on the settings that I have selected, it'll start making copies of my files over into that network share. But I I don't want to use that, so I'm going to cancel this. Uh, the next option is exclude folders, and these are folders that you can tell uh, File History not to keep track of. And so I've added a few just to show you that you can do it. Uh, and I'm not recommending that you go in and add anything in here. That's up to you guys. You can you can do your own uh, uh, exclusions, um, but. Uh, just just to show you how it's done, I've added a few, right? I've got Windows, Program Files, Program Files, x86, and Program Data. And to add, you just select Add. You select a, a directory. Uh, if I go to C here, I can, I've got all my directories here, and I'll exclude temp, and I'll just select that folder. And so now that folder is in my exclusion list. So if I select Save Changes, we won't keep track of anything in that directory anymore.
0: So by default, file file history is keeping keeping every file? I mean, even my Windows directory and everything there?
1: Yeah, by, by default. it There's nothing in the exclusions.
0: Okay, um, all right.
1: So, so I believe, uh, and we need to check on this, right? Uh, I'm not 100% certain. I know that it keeps track of your libraries uh, by default. Um, and I, I don't really know about the Windows directory. It may or may not, so we'll have to check on that. Okay. Uh, under Advanced Settings, Um, Save copies of files every hour is the default. I can tell it every 10 minutes, right? So whenever a file changes, it goes out and it sets a bit that that file has been changed. We go out, we query for those those bits, and then we will back up any files that that have changed that are in the directories that you haven't excluded. Um, Size of offline cache just allows you to set a specific size for caching files that have changed locally on your drive. Um, And keep saved versions. This defines how long we want to keep saved versions of files. Uh, By default, it's forever. You can set it to two years if you want. You can set it to one year. You can set it to one month. So pretty pretty straightforward. There's actually even a file history event log, and so let's take a look at that real quick. There we go. And uh, these are events that uh, have been logged since I turned file history on this morning.
0: Okay, so that's kinda nice. This is a shortcut right into the event viewer, right to the specific events having to do with the file history capability. Yeah, exactly.
1: Now, some of these are errors that I generated. Um, in fact, I think all of these are errors that I generated. I uh, unplugged some drives in the middle, um, plugged drives in, um, just because I wanted to, to show you what happens in the event log, right? What, mm-hmm. what the events actually looked like. Um, but, but it's there. We log any issues that we've had. And so you can always go and check the event log if there's an issue that you're having and see if there's anything in there that may help. Okay, So I'm not going to save these changes. I'll cancel out. Uh, uh, Now file history is enabled. So uh, I'll just minimize this. And uh, let's just bring up Explore. And I'll go into let's see. So if I just go into my libraries and then pictures, here are some of the pictures that I have on my uh, on my computer. I'll just uh, highlight this file and uh, delete it. But then I just I've, I've realized that that was a mistake, right? I shouldn't have done that. I really need that picture, so I'll just go to home and then history. And it'll bring up file history for that directory, and oh, okay. uh, there's the picture that I deleted. I'll just click this little green restore to original location button.
0: So it's and showing you uh, a point in a point in time of what that folder looked like at that time, and it looks like you can actually navigate back and forth um, over past. I guess we call them snapshots. Absolutely.
1: Correct. Okay, yeah, I can go back or I can go forward. And I can restore any of the files that I've accidentally deleted as long as they're backed up and in file history.
0: Now what if you uh, accidentally uh, save a change over a file? So if I, it's not deleted, but, but I've opened up a document and I've made some massive changes, and instead of saving it as a new file, I ac- accidentally saved it over. Do I have yeah, so I, w-
1: I would just go back to a previous version of that file.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Yeah, yeah. I just go back and restore a previous version of that file. So file history is actually pretty cool. Uh, File history is a great way to add a little bit of insurance, right? If uh, and I'll I'll show you this as well. I'll uh, just cancel out of here. But uh, I've actually got my file history drive exposed, and if I go into the file history folder on the file history drive, I can navigate. to a specific directory if I want to and see what's in that directory. Hmm. Now again we just set this up today so there's not really any older files. Um, I haven't made any changes to any of these files so there's not a back and forth. right? I can't go back and I can't go forward because this this is just a snapshot in time of my PC and since we're doing this show uh, live and I just set this up this morning it's actually still building my file history.
0: Okay. Uh, but but
1: that's how it works.
0: There's and navigating the navigating to this. Drive. I'm sorry. Na- navigating to this folder is not something you typically do. You just sort of leave that. That's your backup. Leave it uh, there. Yep. It's keeping all the revisions for you. Uh, but you're just really proving the fo- point that you actually do have data there. Exactly. Yeah,
1: ex- exactly correct. That's okay. exactly correct. Um, and uh, by the way, to get to the file history menu, it's it's just always uh, under home and mm-hmm. uh, it's uh, It's this little history icon here. In fact, uh, this directory isn't in my file history, so that that history icon is grayed out. But if I go to one of my libraries, let's go to pictures and then home. Let's go to my pictures and then home. Now I get the file history icon because it's actually finished doing this directory. Now, once it's done everything, I can go into any folder under my library and select... The folder that I want, and the history icon will be available.
0: Make sense? It does, and you can actually, uh, if I understand from my use of it too, go to an individual file, um, any you know document, for example, that that has had changes to it. You can actually open up history on that as well. Yeah,
1: absolutely correct. There's a, there's an example of that. Yeah. Okay. Right. I just went to a picture and opened up uh, file history on that picture. I've only got one of one. It's a picture. It hasn't changed.
0: Right, right. Um, And you've only had the one snapshot since you started file history.
1: Yeah, exactly correct.
0: And you can set the frequency of that as well, correct? And that was in the options earlier.
1: Yes, absolutely. That's if I go down to the bottom here and go back into control panel and go into file history and advanced settings, that's one of the settings that I have. Right, save copies of files and then I've got a, a a time parameter I can set. Every ten minutes, every fifteen, every twenty, every thirty, every hour,
0: okay. uh, etc. And it's fairly efficient. I mean, we don't we shouldn't have to worry about if we say every five minutes that my system is going to be churning, backing up every single file. Because, as you said, your first when, you, when it's first run, of course, it's going to have to go through every file. But after that, it's only saving changes.
1: That's correct. Now, I, you know, I don't want to say that it's not possible that your machine would churn, right? If you go in and if if you have 30,000 files and you, <laughs> and you
0: modify the them all within
1: a five-minute period, then, mm-hmm,
0: you know, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay.
1: But but that's the deal. That's how it works.
0: Excellent. All right, what else you want to show us today?
1: So let's talk about Hyper-V for just a second. Um, one of the really cool things that we've always been able to do, or at least been able to do for a long, long time, is create virtual machines. Um, you know, we had virtual PC for some of our older client-side OSs a while back. Um, but really, there's, there's been a lot of great technology um, recently around virtual machines. And um, one of those is hardware support, right? So CPUs now support virtualization natively. Um, and uh, so Hyper-V Manager is actually something that uh, traditionally has been shipped in our server OS's. In Windows 8, it's something that we're actually shipping in Windows 8, in the client version of Windows 8. So why, why is that cool? Well, it's cool because now you can create virtual machines in a desktop OS and manage those virtual machines, etc. You can create virtual switches. You can manage virtual networks. Um, so it's actually pretty cool. So I'm going to show you that. Let's go to the start screen, and I'm just going to type in Hyper-V. Whoops! There we go. And here's Hyper-V Manager, and I'll just launch that. And uh, I've got a virtual machine. Uh, I've got a, a Windows Server 2012 virtual machine that I created earlier, and uh, I can I can run that. And I'll do that in just a second. But before I do that, let's go ahead and take a look at some of the options that we have under actions, right? I can import a virtual machine. If I select that, all I have to do is point it at a location for a virtual machine. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to import one right now, but it's very simple to do. So if you've got some VMs that you've created uh, previously, you can import those. We'll import those. Mm -hmm. If I go into Hyper-V settings... This is really where we control where things are created. Um, So virtual hard disks allows me to create a path to store virtual hard disks. Oh, you're setting Uh, up the
0: defaults here. Okay.
1: Yeah, exactly correct. Yeah, these are the default locations on my machine where I'm going to store all of the uh, virtual machines and support components. Um, For instance, my virtual machines are going to be stored in C colon backslash program data Microsoft Windows Hyper-V. Uh, NUMA spanning. Uh, NUMA is non-uniform memory architecture nodes. Uh, I can set that up here. Storage migrations. I can specify how many storage migrations can be performed uh, at the same time.
0: And these uh, are live storage uh, migrations. So a virtual machine running can actually have its hard disk and configuration move from one point to another even while the machine's running. Absolutely. And yeah. that's
1: pretty cool, isn't it?
0: It's extremely cool. That's why I wanted to yeah. bring it up. <laughs> for sure. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. Under user keyboard, right, uh, how do you want Windows key combinations uh, to work? And I can uh, use physical computer, use virtual machine, or uh, use on the virtual machine only when running full screen, right? Um, And then, you know, we can set up control alt-left arrow for the release key. Uh, And uh, the release key, the mouse release key, is essentially just a way for me to take the mouse pointer that's in a virtual machine and release it so that it can be used outside the virtual machine. Uh, Reset checkboxes. I can clear all checked boxes and hide pages and messages when checked. Restores Hyper-V configuration messages to allow wizard pages that are hidden by selecting checkboxes. So those are just some of the settings that you have access to. Virtual Switch Manager allows me to manage and set up virtual switches, right? So I can create virtual switches. So a switch is a networking component, right? And uh, switches work based on MAC addresses. um, And so I can define ports on a virtual switch so that uh, virtual machines that I bring up, I can attach to an internal network, an external network, a private network, by just attaching them to the appropriate virtual switch. So it's actually kind of neat. Let me go ahead and just start uh, this uh, virtual machine. So if I uh, just right-click and select Start, now that machine is powering up.
0: Yeah, while the machine is starting up, there's there's actually also settings on the machine itself, right, and with regard to how much... Processing power is available for that machine. You know how much memory you're giving it, um, which virtual switch it might be connected to if it has a, a defined virtual NIC or virtual network interface. Uh, yeah, there, there's the settings right there.
1: Yeah. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So so there is a there's a under actions I've got lex t Asus PC that's my local box and then I've got a an action list for each of my virtual machines. In this case, I only have one, so I just have one listed. Right, and I can I can minimize these. You can see that there's nothing under 2012. That's my uh, Windows 2012 server. But yeah, I can add hardware. Uh, there's bias, there's memory, I can increase the amount of memory that we've got. I can create virtual processors. Um, All sorts of stuff mount Mm -hmm. drives. Here's network adapter. I'm not actually connected to anything, Uh, but here's where I would actually configure this virtual machine to connect to one of the virtual switches that I've created. Right in this case, I don't, I've only got one, so Mm -hmm. so I'll connect it to the external virtual switch. Right, so now if I hit apply, those changes will apply. Here's my VM. It's going to be kind of big for this window, <laughs> uh-huh. but if I do a Control Alt Delete, it's up and running, and uh, I can log in.
0: All right. And for your for you doing the Control Alt Delete there, you actually clicked on a button up on the toolbar.
1: Yeah, um, I did. Absolutely. I think you can
0: actually use Control Alt End as the keyboard equivalent, because certainly Control Alt Delete on your keyboard is going to affect your host, not your virtual machine.
1: Yeah, that's correct. Right. Okay. So uh, let's let's go back in and. Um, Let's go back out. And I'll just do the keyboard combination as well. So Control Alt and is what I hit on my keyboard. And it, of course, brings me right back to the login screen. So pretty cool. I can have multiple virtual machines running at the same time. Um, It's uh, great to see this technology in a desktop OS.
0: Absolutely, for the sake of uh testing, trying out new things, setting up little training environments and training labs with networking between all the machines uh, it's a uh, there's no better useful uh, and uh, productivity tool as far as uh trying things out and, and learning more about different technologies so yeah we'll solve absolutely. that hyper v is in Windows eight, yeah. So you mentioned um, that, the, of course, virtual, the virtualization support has to be in the processor. So um, to run Hyper-V, you know that's that's in all products, server or or now Windows 8. Um, and I understand there's a couple of other requirements, such as the data execution protection needs to be available and enabled in the processor in the BIOS, and the uh, as well as the virtualization. Supports, just because the hardware has it doesn't necessarily mean the BIOS has it enabled, so that has to be there. And uh, that's true, again, on server and Windows 8, but there's a difference in Windows 8. Windows 8 actually requires second-level address translation, or SLAT, to be enabled in order to enable and and use Hyper-V on Windows 8. And, of course, it does have to be a 64-bit platform, so you can't do it on the 32-bit installation of Windows 8.
1: Yeah. Yeah, all, all true and all good points. So I'm shutting down my uh, virtual machine. I'm just going to go ahead and hit shut down here. And uh, it's off.
0: All right, so Lex, tell us a little bit about Windows To Go.
1: Yeah, so um, I actually did an entire Taste of Premiere episode on Windows To Go, and I think Chris is going to include some of those links in some of that video. But um, Windows To Go is awesome. Windows To Go is absolutely my favorite feature in Windows 8, you know, besides everything else. (laughs) <laughs> yeah so um, anyway windows to go is really cool it's it's a way to install the entire OS on an on removable media so that you can take it around with you plug it into other machines boot uh, into your environment so I have a 32 gig USB stick here and uh, what we're gonna do is just kind of walk through the process of creating a windows to go device so remember that when we're done I'll be able to take this USB stick plug it into any any PC, boot off the USB stick, and be in my own Windows 8 environment, have all my apps, anything that I installed on this USB stick, all my media, anything. Um, And it's not doing it virtually. We're actually installing a copy of the OS, and we're creating all the directories that we would normally create on a hard drive, and you can copy files over, it'll sync, you can use the store, um, as long as it's not over five machines, you know, the standard store rules apply. Hmm. Um, but it's, it's it's actually one of the coolest technologies. I love it to death. So let me show you how to do it in Control Panel real quick. So what I'm going to do here is uh, I'll just open Control Panel. So I'll go over to the Charms, Settings, and then Control Panel. And if you have the Enterprise version of Windows 8, and that's an important distinction, right, this is, this is available in the Enterprise version of Windows 8. There's a Windows to go icon in the control panel. And if I just launch that Windows to go applet, it'll go out, it'll take a look at the devices that I have uh, attached to my machine and and just ask me which device I want to use for Windows to go. So if I select, uh, let's select this uh, generic storage device and wah wah wah, doesn't work. This is a removable drive and doesn't come and is isn't compatible with Windows to go. Choose a drive that meets the required hardware specifications. So let's talk about that for a second. Okay? Uh, not all USB sticks are created equal. Um, some USB sticks have two read and write channels, some have eight read and write channels, right? So so there's different levels of performance. Also USB 3.0 is much faster than USB 1.1. Um, and so really to get the most out of this, you need to have uh, a, a USB drive that essentially looks to the OS like an SSD. right? So the stick that I have here is actually the uh, Kingston Data Traveler Ultimate. There are other manufacturers that make sticks. Um, Patriot makes one. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to plug this certified Windows-to-Go device into my USB 3.0 port. And uh, we should see that pop up here in just a second. There it is. And uh, so if I highlight that device right there, uh, notice that I get error messages here and here, but I don't get an error message when I highlight that one. And this one is actually 64 gigs. Uh, So let me select Next. The next thing that'll happen is it'll ask me for an image. Um, I actually already have this drive built out as a Windows to Go device. So I'm not going to point to an image and and build it again, because it's already built. Um, But all you need is an ISO. All All you need for this to work at this point is a Windows 8 Enterprise disk image. Uh, You just browse to the disk image, you select Next, it automatically builds the drive for you. Very cool, very simple, very straightforward. Uh, The other really cool thing here is that if you're in a corporate environment, you can actually domain join uh, any policies that your system administrator wants to uh, push down, get pushed down. Uh, It works like a champ. Um, I actually run off of mine periodically. So so that's kind of the idea behind it, right? Um, Kevin, any questions?
0: Well, yeah, I guess, uh, I mean, you mentioned that enterprises can uh, can do some customization. I mean, that, that sounds, I guess that's the biggest question I have. If I'm a business that wants to roll this out to my users, what a great thing uh, in, in terms of, uh, well, the scenarios are just mind-boggling. The fact that people have their, their work PC in their hand, in their pocket, and going up to any machine that's capable of doing USB 2.0 or better, uh, certainly USB 3 is going to be much better but USB 2 is is supported for running this um that we have not only a machine that I uh, can carry around with me but is also a company sanctioned image that they can use um so is that is that customization process difficult um do you have uh, no, maybe a moment to tell us about some of the tools involved
1: yeah yeah so it's 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 very easy right it's just like it's just like provisioning a regular desktop um uh, and, and you brought up a, a really good point. Um, deployment of these is very simple, right? You can you can build a hundred of them at a time uh, and and just issue the USB sticker, the the, the drive hmm. uh, and, uh, so so very very efficient, very cost effective. You know, kind of one of, the, one of the trends that I see a lot lately is the whole bring your own device deal. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I think customers struggle with when we're talking about bring your own device is the fact that um, bringing your own device is cool, but people choose an entire plethora of different devices, right? And so you want to be able to push down policies. You want to be able to uh, control what has access to your network. So imagine this scenario, right? I issue you a Windows-to-Go drive. It's bit Um You've got direct access enabled, right? You, mm-hmm. you come into work, you plug it into whatever you want. You're on the network. You know, I can push down policies because of direct access. Um, I can give you access to everything that you need because you're you are you are using direct access so you're attached to the corporate network Um, so all your tools work email works everything works link works um, just like it would on a normal PC now the end of the day comes you unplug your device you stick it in your pocket you go to your house you plug it into your home machine uh, because you know something's come up and you need to do some work at home and it works just like you were you were sitting at your desk uh, because of direct access, so everything everything works just like you were carrying a PC around with you, only it's just a much smaller footprint. And the mm-hmm. cool thing is is that it's not it's not tied to a specific piece of hardware.
0: Fantastic. And certainly uh, less of a problem if, you, if it falls out of your pocket or, or you leave it in a taxi or, or it gets stolen at the airport. I mean, people aren't, aren't usually targeting the little USB stick anyway, but it's nice to know that uh, it's not that big of a deal. And it's BitLocker protected, so there's no data that can be read off of that.
1: Right, no. exactly correct. And there, there's actually also one other feature that I haven't talked about. Um, uh, and that is, uh, by default, if I plug this into my home machine, the only drive that I see is, is the the device itself, right? So great for preventing, you know, somebody from plugging it into a machine that's, you know, got some virus on it, and, and you know, you don't really want that virus to spread. Um, so uh, I only have access to, to the local device. Now, you can change that. There's a way to change that. Um, okay. If you're an admin on the box, you can go in and, and make... Drives available in disk management, so so you can get around that feature. But by default, um, you don't have access to your local drives.
0: Excellent, excellent. Yeah, that was actually you beat me to it. That was my next question about the security of that physical PC that I decided to use as my work PC temporarily. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Very good.
1: All right. Well. Uh, anything else today?
0: Well, uh, if you uh, if you have time, do you want to talk about storage spaces?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so before I show you how to create a storage space, let's talk a little bit about what storage spaces are. Um, Kevin, do you remember the old uh, Windows Media Center? Uh, oh, absolutely. Computers, the dedicated computers, right, where you could kind of add drives uh, if you needed more space, et cetera. Oh, the Oh, the home server. Yeah, the home server stuff. Yeah. Um, storage spaces is a lot like that.
0: Okay, if I go okay. into
1: Storage Spaces in Control Panel, uh, the first page I see gives me the option to create a new pool. So I'll I'll create a new pool. Doesn't see any drives, but I do have an unformatted drive uh, attached. So uh, we'll use that, and I'll just go and select Create Pool, and it'll it'll create the pool. Now I'm only using one drive in the storage space, but you can you can use multiple drives. In fact. That's what's so cool about storage space, right? Um, notice that the maximum size here I have uh, for my space is 232 gigs. Now, I certainly don't have a one terabyte drive attached, but I can create a one terabyte storage space. And so if I if I go in and, and, and change this and select create storage space, the really cool part about this is that it will allow me to create a partition or a storage space that's much larger than the physical drives that I actually have attached to the, to the box. And so then the next question is, what happens when I run out of space? Well, what happens is, it just tells you you need to add another drive. Plug huh. another drive in, make it part of the storage uh, space, um, and it uses that space on the drive. So it's, so it's, it's pretty cool.
0: So it's just automatically striping the data across all these disks, and you can just add resources, or I should say add additional capacity to the pool um, in, in order to fulfill this lie that you've told about how much space you actually have.
1: Yeah, except you right. use the word stripe, and I want to make sure that people understand that there's different types of resiliency that we can add. Stripe is kind of a RAID term, and it's kind of like a RAID, right? Because you can you can select different types of resiliency. So, if I do simple, it there's no resilience. Right? Okay. We, we don't mirror. We don't care about a parity bit. We just write data.
0: All
1: right. Um, I can do a two-way mirror. A two-way mirror requires that I have at least two drives. Uh, essentially, what that means is that when I write file A uh, to drive A, it mirrors that on drive B. Okay, so
0: you're getting some uh, some pretty good resiliency, or, or redundancy, I guess I should say. The data, uh, if one drive fails, you have everything that you need. Um, the drawback, of course, is that you're using only half the capacity that you have.
1: That's correct. We can also do a three-way mirror, right? And a three-way mirror uh, requires at least five drives. Okay. So three copies of my data across five drives, right? I can also... Do parity, and you understand how parity works, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I've got a parity bit that I will write along with the data that I write to the drive, and that parity bit gives me, and I can use to restore the data, right? So um, to do parity, I need to have at least three drives in my storage space. And so when I create that storage space pool, those drives are now going to appear to the OS as one drive. And uh, it, it's really cool when I start to run out of space, more drives, like we said earlier. I can select the uh, resiliency type so so that if I do lose a drive, I don't lose all of my data. I can just replace that drive, and it will rebuild that data. Um, uh, really cool. Any Any additional questions about it?
0: I don't think so. No, I guess I'm thinking about some of the uses for this. I mean, certainly in a home environment, you would use it for, kind of like the home server, it was a great media repository uh, for for the family pictures, family videos, um, your recorded TV, if you have a media center connected to it, really, really good solution for that. And certainly in a business scenario, uh, if you have a large number of documents you need to manage locally, but being able to drive that or manage that sort of storage for the local system um, on a Windows 8 machine, uh, great capability. And I guess I'd point out that storage spaces is also in Windows Server, so You can actually, uh, in a server, in a data center environment, is a good op- good option for kind of uh, uh, either replacing or at least complementing your storage solution, uh, your SAN, your, your Fiber Channel or iSCSI, and some of the capabilities of creating LUNs and being able to add storage to the pools in the back end. And these are all functionalities that also carry forward on a server.
1: Yeah, absolutely correct. Well, that that's that's storage spaces. Um, that that's kind of how it works. That's those are the options that you have, um, and uh, that that's that's what it's all about.
0: Fantastic. All right, so great great episode. Thank you so much, Lex. Um, where do you think we should send people for more information?
1: Well, there's the Springboard site that we mentioned uh, in the uh, first few episodes, and I think that's probably the best place.
0: Okay, so Microsoft.com slash Springboard, all one word. Uh, great location for information about Windows 8, certainly for, for individuals as well as, uh, very importantly, for business. All right, well, again, thank you so much for your time today. Lex, really appreciate it. Yeah, anytime. Uh, time. These things are so much fun to
1: do. You know, I love doing them. I'm such oh, yeah. a ham.
0: We got a few more to do. I think we're halfway through. So let's get through the other four of this eight. And uh, we'll see you next time on TechNet Radio, Reimagining Windows.